You're listening to Conversations with John Anderson, featuring Patrick Bet David. Patrick Bet David is an entrepreneur, businessman, and prominent social commentator. He's been featured on major publications such as Entrepreneur Magazine, CNN Money, Fox Business, and Business Insider. His life story is quite remarkable. He began life in revolutionary Iran as a little boy. He moved to a German refugee camp. He finally was able to move with his family to America. And if anyone embodies the American dream, it's this man. He started his own insurance company as a young man, PHP Agency Inc., now one of the fastest growing companies in the financial marketplace. In 2013, Patrick also created Valuetainment, a media brand with the purpose of teaching fundamentals of entrepreneurship and personal development. He has his own popular podcast, PBD Podcast, where he interviews guests in business, sport, entertainment, and public life. He very kindly appeared, asked me to appear with him on his show here in Florida, uh, and has also generously now indicated that he's happy for me to have a conversation with him for the series. Well, Patrick, you've hosted me in Miami. It's been a great privilege to spend a couple of hours with you on your show. You've kindly now agreed to talk to me. Can I begin by saying that you were, you were born on the eve of the Iranian Revolution and the Iran-Iraq War. Your family moved to a refugee camp in Germany for two years. Finally, you were all granted asylum in America, sunny California, the other side of the pond from Australia. Can I ask you, give us a feel, what was life like in Iran, then Germany, and how do you think those early years shaped your worldview and your personality? Well, first of all, I appreciate you for being on the podcast and now having me on your show. We really enjoyed it. But, you know, when you're born, my favorite question to ask anybody was, I said, where are you from? I'm from Alabama. You were born and raised here? I was. What is it like being born and raised in Alabama? They say, this is the only thing I know. I don't know any other way, right? This is the way we know how to be raised. To me, Iran was normal. That's how life is supposed to be. Friction, war, bombing, division. You know, this was constant in Iran. Because I was born October 1878. This is the peak of the revolution. Three months later, the Shah's in exile. And Khomeini comes and replaces all the generals. And when he replaces... 2,000 military leaders, Saddam Hussein sees that as an opportunity because the military is divided. Khomeini doesn't know how to run a military, so they attack half a million lives. We're living in the capital of Iran, Tehran, Iran, and war is constantly happening. We're escaping to different cities. Finally, my mom says, we can't do this anymore. She talks to my dad. Uh, Six weeks after Khomeini dies, I think he died June 2nd or June 3rd of 89. Six weeks later, we escape. We go to Germany. Lived in Germany for a couple of years. Great experience because I learned how to get along with people from Prague. I learned how to get along with people that were Yugoslavian back then or Albanian or Polish or Afghani. And we're learning. It's like you're being forced to learn different cultures, different personalities, different political beliefs in two years. You'll learn a lot about, every, about everybody. And then with the dream of one day coming to the States, you know, when we came to America, November 28, 1990, it's like a movie. You're looking for Rocky, you're looking for Tony Montana, you're looking for Gremlins, you're looking for Ghostbusters. And then uh, we came to LA, uh, uh, this was a dream. In Iran, every time somebody leaves Iran and goes to either Australia, because a lot of Assyrians would go to Australia. That was one of the places, it was either Australia or was Iran. And when people would go there, it was a celebration, there was always a party. This family's leaving, they're free. When our turn came, it was a celebration. And eventually when we got to US, couldn't believe it was uh, really happening. It was all a dream until it eventually became a reality. Just to backtrack for a moment. I mean, yours was an ancient and proud and an extraordinarily interesting culture. Under the Shah, there'd been a surprising degree of, of modernity sort of emerging. You know, universities springing up, you had a manufacturing sector, it was looking more more Western, was it corruption? Was it uh, uh, religious factors? What halted that with, uh, and led to the downfall of the Shah? Well, there's a lot of different things that you think about because 
it's easy. Anytime you talk to people uh, in regards to Iran, they'll bring up Savak with the Shah. Well, the Shah was a ruler. He was tough. He was this. He was that. And, you know, Mossadegh and, you know, what the CIA did to not allow Mossadegh to run Iran because Mossadegh would have done a great job and Iran would have been this and Iran would have been that. Mossadegh was a modern-day Bernie Sanders is who he would have been. So Iran would have been a socialistic nation. So when the Shah came in, you know, women didn't have any say. They didn't have any say. Now they could be lawyers. Now they can vote. Now the age to get married, I think, went from 13 to 15 years old to, I mean, you know, you may say 15 years old. That, that's a big difference. 8, 13, 15. And women were a little bit more freer. You know, they had a voice. They had independence. They could go around and vote. You couldn't do that before. And uh, Elizabeth Taylor was dating the ambassador, U.S. ambassador working in Iran, Zahedi. They were dating each other. Frank Sinatra would come to Iran. Concerts were amazing. Nightlife was amazing. A lot of times the, the wealthy of the wealthy around the world, you know, they would go to Iran. If you had yeah, money, you'd go right. to Iran. You know, that's where you would go for vacation yeah. because that's where the rich people would go to. And, then, and, that, I, and that, that Persian culture that went back for absolutely. centuries. It so rich. I mean, if you want to go see a nice museum, we go here. This building has been here for 150 years. I'm like, 150 years? This building has been here for 2,000 years in Iran. You go to certain places. The history is completely different. But so you ask why, what happened for it to flip? Now, you know, if, if some will say an agreement came about in 1954. It was an oil agreement that the Shah and Iran, not, you know, the Iran signed that was coming up. So 1954 was a 25-year agreement that was coming up in 1979. And France was involved. U.S. was involved. I want to say Germany was involved and UK was involved. I think these were the four countries. And they had a meeting in South or Central America. There was a meeting where they said, we have to figure out a way what we need to do because if this thing renews, he's going to raise the prices on all of us and this is going to be tough. We have to figure out a way for this not to happen. Some call it a conspiracy. Some have all this documented that this meeting took place. There's plenty of documentaries to watch on this thing. And then they said, if this is going to be taking place, we got to figure something out. So who is the enemy to pin against the Shah? A guy who was in exile from Iran for a little over a decade, Khomeini, who was living in France, Paris at the time. And he was sending tapes into Iran to get the message to be viral. Carter comes in. And he um, was deeply convicted that the West was corrupt and degenerate. 100%. 100%. So he's living in Paris. That's right. He's learning in Paris. He's saying the West is just disgusting. Yeah, really virulently anti-West, and he was calling Shah the puppet to the West. You know that yep. was the biggest thing. Yeah, the puppet to the West, the puppet to the West. Anyway, so eventually these tapes come in, people start listening to it, and the Shah's kind of worried because he had the two-day party. The two-day party was like the Communist Party. That's what that was coming down from Russia, and they were coming and living in Iran, and they were spreading the Communist Manifesto. He was very worried about that. So a big part of uh, Savak's job was to make sure he always prevented two-day party for creating momentum, but he didn't think Khomeini was ever going to have the momentum. He thought it's not going to be a big deal. Anyways, Carter comes December 31st of 1977. He does a toast with the Shah, and you can see this video, and he says, you know, Iran and the Shah is a very important partner of the U.S., and they do a toast, Carter leaves. Literally, when Carter leaves, revolution begins. Once the revolution begins, there was a massive uproar when a fire took place at a theater called Cinema Rex Fire in Abadan. Abadan is the main area with all the oil refineries. When that Cinema Rex Fire happened, the, the two-day party, as well as Khomeini's party, they went around saying it was Savak because they locked in the theater. 400 people are there watching a the movie. They locked the doors. They turned the place on fire. Nobody could leave. 400 people died. They blamed Savak. The moment they blamed Savak, they blamed the Shah. At that point, 9 million people revolted. And when the Shah asked for help from Carter and Kissinger, they didn't help him out. And next thing you know, he had to leave and the rest is history. Very profound for the world we now live in, that whole event. So the, the West lost a friend, maybe not a very good friend in some ways, but they lost a friend. So the clerics gained control and Khomeini for a while is torn about whether to allow some sort of democracy or elected leadership, as I understand it, or whether to make it an out-and-out -out theocracy, and the latter wins. Is that right? Is that sort of what happened? In regards to him, um, well, he's not a politician. 
right? Yep. Ruallah Khomeini, he's more an imam. Yep. He's more a religious yep. figure. It's not somebody that's going to be able to, you know, uh, uh, make decisions on how to, what is the right way to run a nation. Other people were doing that for him. But, uh, you know, look, I mean, uh, in, in many ways, when Iran had Shah there, nobody in that region was worried. There wasn't issues with uh, all the other countries. Israel was fine. You know, people weren't really going to, of course, Israel came on later on, but Israel had its own deal. It wasn't as scary as it is today. Today, when you say Middle East, the average person doesn't say, I'd love to go to vacation to the Middle East. Person doesn't wake up and say, honey, let's take our kids to the Middle East. Maybe you go to Dubai. Maybe you go to Qatar for the World Cup, but you're not waking up saying, let's go to Iran anymore. So him being strong kind of, uh, you know, strengthen their surrounding neighbors, similar to how you and I were talking about, you know, how much of the world relies on U.S. staying strong. And if U.S. gets weak, the rest of the world is affected by it because they can stand up against many of the bullies. That's what they were doing in Iran. Now, a couple of the mistakes that the Shah did make is in an interview he did, I believe it was BBC or Wallace, he talked about the fact that the blue-eyed people are taking one too many sleeping pills. And he said within the next five years, you know, Iran's going to be the same as uh, Britain is. And he had a smirk on his face when he said that. You can see this when you watch the interview. And he was becoming a little bit too confident. Here's a man that's good-looking, speaks seven different languages, diplomatic. He did what he did to Iran. Everybody around the world wants his oil. It's becoming a little too powerful. And it's not like it's a voting every four to eight years. You know, he's been in power for a while. It's a bit of a scary character that they have. So some people sat around and said, if this guy gets a little too powerful, we can't be pushing our weight anymore. We got to get rid of him. So maybe some of it was self-inflicted, but in many ways, Iran was a much better place when he was running Iran. So uh, coming back to your arrival in America, uh, it must have been an extraordinary thing. Uh, you've said a little about the shock of being America. Uh, again, finding yourself here. How did it play out? I think you've made reference to the fact that you're a restless schoolboy. It, it was a bit hard to settle down and find your feet. You know, I, I lived in a city called Glendale, California, which has a lot of Armenians. So a lot of my own kind was there, Armenians, Assyrians, Persians. So it's not like you felt, you know, alone. You had some people. But I wasn't a kid that did good in uh, school. I was a one-point GPA student, which is a C student. And uh, barely passing my classes. I wasn't paying attention. My parents were going through a divorce. They divorced twice in 20 years. So kind of trying to figure it out. I'm learning how to make money on the side. I'm always selling stuff. I'm selling hats. I'm selling anything I can get my hands on that's legal. I'm selling. And then after, the, uh, after high school, I'm thinking, what will I do? I joined the Army. I went to the U.S. Army for a few years. I was at the 101st Airborne Division, Air Assault. Had a great time. Probably the best decision I made is joining the military. And then at that time, I said, I want to be the next Middle Eastern Arnold Schwarzenegger. I'm going to go be a bodybuilder. I'm going to win Mr. Olympia. I'm going to be an actor. I'm going to be a Mary Kennedy. And one day I'm going to run for governor is what I'll do. But uh, I ended up working in the financial industry. Morgan Stanley Dean Witter a day before 9-11. And then stayed in that business for 20 plus years. And accidentally started a media company. So Extraordinary. Um, just as a matter of interest, you were very keen on the military. We've been talking about America's leadership role in the world. It seems that they're having a lot of trouble recruiting enough young people today to join the military. What's gone wrong? Why don't young people want to join the military anymore? Well, think about it. Like if, I, I couldn't tell you exactly, but if I'm just speculating, I would say many times when somebody's joining the military, you know, the, the person, the way you paint a picture of whoever the hero is, the kid wants to be that hero figure, right? Okay. So why do people want to be Hollywood stars? Because we sell them as such heroic figures. Oh, my God. You're going to be on a poster. You're going to be seen by millions of people. And you're doing such great things with beautiful women. And you're acting. And people see you around the world. So I want to be an actor one day because it's a hero. It's like a fascination. It's an imagination. Like, what if I could one day do that? And for many years, the soldier was the hero, the sniper, the general. You know, the SEAL, we looked up to these guys. And then all of a sudden it turns, you know, these guys may not be good. These guys are killing people. They're doing this, they're doing that. And it was less selling that they defend freedom. And it was more, you know, they're all about war. They're all about this, they're all about that. So maybe it wasn't sold as the right kind of a hero 
where people wanted to follow it. And then the other part is, a part of joining the military, parents have some say in it, right? I mean, parents are going to be selling to say, son, you should go, versus parents are going to say, you shouldn't go. Well, today, if the numbers are down, maybe parents are not that supportive of their kids joining the military because it's not the same as it was before. A little too soft. Some of the messaging is off. It's no longer what it once was to be uh, a heroic figure in the military. So, But at the same time, I think when 9-11 happened, the difference between 9-11 and the pandemic, if we were to look at the difference between those two, we're just briefly talking about it. 9-11 unified America against a common enemy, right? Yep. Pandemic didn't unify America. Pandemic, they could have unified and made China the common enemy, but the pandemic actually divided and the common enemy became a president. So it wasn't about, hey, look at China, he's the enemy, let's come together and unify and go defend our freedoms, defend our rights. No. The media said, hey, look at the pandemic. It's his fault. Trump did it. No, but China started. No, no, no. He did it. So America, in, instead of going this way, we went this way, and then there's division. And then once there's division, there's not really a unified cause for me to say, I'm going to go serve the military because China's the enemy. No, we didn't have a common enemy. You need a con common enemy to have recruitment going up. We did not have a common enemy in America. Again, this is purely my speculation. I may be wrong, but... That's why I think recruiting went down. That's what we were talking about that earlier um, on your series, and people can look that up now on this site, uh, that, that, that in a way we've made one another in our countries uh, our enemies rather than recognising that there are external people who are much more savage uh, and capable of squashing everything that we might believe in as with our fellow Americans, fellow Australians, whatever it is. This internal war, as we tear ourselves apart, it must be baffling to you because you've seen the, how dangerous that can be. Oh, my God. I mean, look, I sit down with my kids and, you know, I'll tell my boys when they fight. They fight all the time. They're eight-year-old and 10-year-old. They're always So they're fighting. normal boys? Normal boys. They're fighting all the time. And when I say fighting, these guys fight, like legit fighting, punching, kicking, everything. And they take jujitsu, so they bring it home, right? <laughs> so it's, oh, well, my, my nanny or my, my wife or my dad, I'm like, you got to stop them from fighting. What do you want them to do? These guys are boys are fighting. But I'll tell them, I say, listen, no matter what happens, We'll watch a movie like the other day. I had him watch the movie uh, um, uh, Pearl Harbor, where two best friends are fighting over a girl. Yeah. And I said, so what would you take away from this movie? Well, you know, this, this. I said, here's one thing. Never fight for the same girl. Never. Never let a girl come between the two of you guys. You two are going to be best friends. The relationship you have with each other is more important than the relationship you have with me. I'm not going to be around forever. You guys are going to be together more. You have to become best friends. You have to defend each other. You can't let people publicly humiliate you. If somebody humiliates your brother, you got to defend him. Privately, you can humiliate each other and take shots, but public, you guys got to be unified, right? But we're not giving that message. The message isn't that. The message is the other political party is the enemy. The message isn't the enemies outside of the country. The enemy is inside. It's a very divisive way of running a country. And I think, listen, if we really want to say who's had a hand on this, you got to put the media in there. The media has not necessarily done a great job of trying to unify. The media saw for eyeballs. The media saw for, you know, any kind of a hoax or any kind of marketing campaign that gets people to get viewership. That's what they're all about. The media's forgotten about the journalistic integrity. 95% uh, of them are pundits. We don't have journalists anymore. There is no longer the four accountabilities that journalists have that they lean towards. We don't have that anymore. You know, people can get away with anything nowadays when you're talking about journalists and mainstream media. So if somebody goes out there and tells their viewers a million times you're a bad person, whether you are or not, it's irrelevant. I've said it a million times. My viewership thinks you're a bad person. So media gets a part of the blame. Uh, the voters, we get a part of the blame to being lazy voters. We're not doing our own due diligence. We can't just blame the government and blame mainstream. It's easy to blame everybody. We take the blame as well as a voter. We're not willing to take the time to ask the question, trickle-down economics has always never worked. Who the hell said that? Do a little research and find out. If you don't believe in it, go study Milton Friedman, go study Karl Marx and make a decision for yourself. But don't just go read Karl Marx and not read Milton Friedman. And don't just go read Milton Friedman and not read Karl Marx. We have to become better voters. So I think mainstream media screwed up. I think parents kind of sat on the sidelines being lazy, not paying attention to who to vote for, what policies to vote for. And our universities and education has definitely not done a great job raising kids. Parents are, you, you're talking about recruiting is down to the military. Right now in Florida, they don't have enough teachers to teach. And parents are taking their kids out of private, out of public school 
put them in private school and homeschooling. Homeschooling's to the roof. Why is homeschooling going up? Parents don't trust the public system. You want me to send my kids to school so you can brainwash my kids and I'm going to lose my kids for 10 to 15 years? I don't subscribe to that. So all of those things that they did, a lot of people are waking up today. But we need to constantly stay awake. And unfortunately, America's really having a problem with that. You just said a moment ago that you said to your two boys, you need to be closer than you are to me because I won't be there all the time. That's a bit surely tongue in cheek. You said something very profound when you were young. Your dad asked you what you wanted to do, most of all. And you said you wanted to be a father. Uh, and so you, I think, understand just how important fathers are. We've got a, right across the West, but in your country, a boy crisis. I mean, it's just extraordinary. One in four children now growing up with only no father figure in the home, let alone their biological father. Um, Often uh, father figures are the butt of jokes in the media uh, and in comedies they're sent up as, you know, hopeless, hapless dad, men are useless, Homer Simpson. What have we done? Why have we destroyed the idea of fathering so much? You know, one, we've allowed it, right? So one is we've allowed it where we laugh at the jokes, which is not funny to be laughing at. There's certain jokes when I, you know, I'll say, I'm sorry, I, what are we laughing at? That's not funny. What are we doing laughing at this joke here? This is not a funny joke. I really get that. Yeah. And so we are, we have joined the becoming a laughing stock. So we contributed towards that. Yeah. For example, let's just say we're sitting here having a conversation. Yes. And I say all of a sudden something like, you know, uh, uh, whatever comment I make about anything, you know, uh, people are horrible, you know, women are this, men are this, and, you know, I start making fun of a certain community, whether it's ethnicity, background, and you laugh at it. You just supported me. He laughs at it. You just supported me. He laughs at it. Yeah. You guys just gave me validation for my verses. You may say, yeah, I don't think I agree with you on that. I don't feel the same way. We have to say that, and we're not saying that. We're becoming too much of conformity, too much of having to agree with everybody. And we're afraid of this uh, discourse. We're afraid of debate. We're afraid of going out there. You said something very interesting when I think Jordan Peterson asked you in an interview about what's going on, what's the right approach. If you had to do it all over again, what would you do? And you said, I think it's a little bit arrogant for me to give counsel on what to do when I'm not on the inside. But what I can say is we need discourse. We need debate. You're absolutely right when you told that to Jordan Peterson. We're afraid of this debate, this discourse. So when, when a lot of these ideas about father figures is being pitched and is being sold, if we laugh at it, we're part of the problem. If we go see it, we're part of the problem. Now, I love comedy. I love sense of humor. I'm a prankster myself. I think that has to be part of our life because we enjoy having fun, all of that. But, uh, you know, again, the, the, the selling of the hero, if you reshape and sell a new hero to people, Kids are going to want to be that when they're growing up. Hero growing up to me was a man named Luther al that He died two years ago. He was the reason why I became a businessman. We'd go to his house once a year. He had a house in Upland, 7,200 square feet. And he was a strong father, but his kids were around him. They loved him. He would impose. He would poke. He would get his 30, 40, 50-year-old kids debating on why God doesn't exist or Money's not that important and why drugs are not that bad. And then he would flip it on him. God does exist. Money's very important. You know, and, and then we'd be like, what is wrong with you, dad? And it was, you know, they're always debating. This guy built a business. They love him. Was with his wife till she died at 90 years old. And then he died a couple years later after his wife died. Raised kids that had great grandkids. And I'm looking, I'm like, you know what? This is a hero. This is who I want to be one day. I want to be, he drove a Jaguar. He always had a Cadillac. His brothers working with him. His family was around him. He was admired. He was feared. He was respected. That to me was a heroic figure in my eyes, right? That today is a greedy man. That is not a heroic figure. Today, the capitalist that went from having nothing to building a business, creating jobs for thousands of people is a bad man. Today, that person is a greedy man. Today, that person is selfish. Today, that person, all he cares about is his Lambo, his Ferrari, his Rolls Royce, his nice watch, his nice cars. That's all he cares about. He's a selfish man. That's a bad man, right? And you know, today, a father that sticks around and is challenging his kids, pushing his kids, imposing on them to become stronger, tougher, you're too tough on them. What's wrong with you? Why are you so militant? You don't, you're not a really good dad. You're not a really good this. 
These are my kids. I chose to have these kids. My wife and I decided to have these kids. These are my responsibilities. So again, the hero-making machine is a problem. The capitalist is a villain. It used to be a hero. The father staying home raising his kids was a hero. Today he's a villain. The person that's going out there doing the right things today, it's, it's become so confusing. So the better of a job you and I do, well, you're raising kids, I'm raising kids, we're fathers, you were telling stories about your daughter, you, you know, a minute ago you saw my six-year-old daughter. Whoever I sell as a hero, they're going to admire that person, you know? They're going to say, wow, this is who a hero is. Dad, that tells me this person is a hero because they solved the problem, because they went against the odds, because they wanted to do something. They were great leaders. They made great choices. They made great decisions. I look up to this person. But if I sell a victim as a hero to constantly feel sorry for everybody all the time, you want me to always feel sorry for everybody? When we were kids and people would come and drop off stuff because we were poor, we were a welfare kid, they would drop off turkey. Never liked that. I never liked that. I never liked people feel sorry, sorry for me. It was a quality my dad said, never let people feel sorry for you. You can do something about it. Today it's become cool to allow other people to feel sorry for me. No, I understand you're helping out. I salute you. Thank you so much for your, you know, charitable wanting to help out the family while we're going through tough times. I appreciate it. But I'm going to make a promise to you. This is the last time you're going to have to bring turkey to us because you don't need to do that for me. You got to do that for your family. It's my job to do it for my family. We need to, we need to recognize that. And, and I just don't think we're doing that. So we confuse a lot of people. You raise a really important point there. There are times when people go through tough things and they might be victims of circumstance and they might need a helping hand. But what now tends to happen is that those victims some real, some not real, are weaponized and kept in victimhood because it's a source of power. I think that's incredibly brutal and destructive. To so say you care about the victim, but actually you don't. You care about using them as a weapon to attack the society that you don't like around to say that that society's done it. You really, you've been very strong in rejecting that approach. Well, whatever, whatever, way, whatever the currency is, because we naturally are driven by recognition, Everybody, 99.9%, we're all driven by recognition, right? We care about followers on YouTube, viewership, likes, who wrote us a letter at our wedding, who brought a gift, who wrote a card, you know, I'm proud of you, I love you, uh, I like our friendship, I value our friendship, you did a great job, you're a New York Times bestseller, you're a Wall Street Journal bestseller, you're Amazon bestseller, you know, you produced the best car, you became the employee of the month, you became the salesperson of the month. Everything we do in our lives is recognition. That's a nice tie. I like your watch. Thank, wow, thank beautiful you. shoes. <laughs> we like recognition. This is a very much of a rec what cologne do you have on? Why? So we're driven by recognition naturally, all of us, right? But if all of a sudden the recognition becomes about, hey, poor you. Oh my gosh, life must be very hard. Man, I feel so bad. How could they do that to you? They did that to you. You didn't do it. It's their fault. It's your mom's fault. It's your dad's fault. It's the government's fault. It's the company's fault. It's your ex's fault. It's everybody's fault. You didn't do any of this stuff. And then you buy in. You're like, yeah, you're right. It was my mom's fault. It was my dad's fault. It was a politician's fault. It was a government's fault. You're right. I didn't do any of this stuff. It's everybody's fault. What the hell are we talking about? But it's so powerful. It's manipulative, but it's powerful. And it's gotten people to get eyeballs to recognize, to sell how hard their lives are. Like for example, nowadays it's cool to post on social media when you're sick or you have COVID. I'm documenting me going through COVID. Why are you documenting it? You're going through COVID, you have COVID. Every time you have problems, you want to advertise it to the world? Why? Because it gets eyeballs. So we have brainwashed people to recognize them, to get eyeballs if they show how weak they are. It's become a cool thing. We don't recognize anymore showing how somebody stands up during tough times, how somebody stood strong, how somebody chose to make the tougher decisions, not the popular decisions, how we want to put the onus back on the individual to step up and do something. Yes, we may need unemployment for three months for people to go through. Do we need it for 12 months? No. Yes, we need some people as they're going through tough times. Maybe welfare does make sense at times when a single mother whose father, husband died and didn't have an insurance policy and she doesn't work, she's raising three kids, we need to do something to help that person out. But then we need to say, this other mother that also went through, she took government assistance for four months, then she went and got a job. She started a part-time business 
and her son saw her do the same thing and they're not running a business themselves, I believe you can do it too. I think you got to get a job while your kids are at school from 8 to 3. I think you can start a part-time business right now when the kids go to sleep. I think you can get your kids involved. We're not doing that. We're not doing that. We're just saying how hard everything is and how you can't solve it. I don't like that. I don't think I want somebody to impose their lack of confidence and discipline to get things done on me. Don't impose your fears on me. Don't impose your insecurities on me or my kids. No, tell me I could do it, even if it's hard. Help me out at times if I need some help, but don't just constantly help me where I have to lean on you for the rest of my life. I don't think that's leadership. I think that's leanership, and I think we need more leadership today than leadership. Unfortunately, we don't have it. Now, we don't have a lot of it today. Well, the great thing about you telling those stories, you could have been a victim. You could have chosen to play that card. And you're in an ideal position to warn the rest of us, don't play that card. It's a roadway paved with good intentions to a very bad place. But uh, you mentioned social media, and it's a big factor in our life today. You're active in it. You're using it constructively. I'm trying to do the same thing. Nonetheless, you make the point that reading's important. You're a great believer in books. Why? So, by the way, to, to, to just finish thoughts on saying the fact that I have the ability to play victim, but I don't, credit goes to my dad because my dad didn't let me. He would not let me do that. I would have easily done that, but he didn't let me. It wasn't part of his standards, and I had I to step up. I suspect you're being modest. No, but, but my dad is a high-standard guy that did not like people feel, feeling sorry for themselves. So I was in a family where my mother's side, most of them were communists. And the, the language was always, poor this person, poor that person, poor this person. And they hated the rich. And my dad was an imperialist who he always saw it from the perspective of, you can do something about yourself. People who don't make money, sometimes they're lazy. And I had to kind of look at them, debate constantly, and who's right? Sometimes he was right, sometimes she was right, but it kind of allowed you to be more independent. But going back to the reading side, I had a one-point GPA. First time I ever read a book, John, cover to cover, I was 21 years old. I've never read a book cover to cover, never. Miss Collins in 10th grade, English, I would hide behind this cheerleader, and she was tiny, and I'm a big guy, I can't hide behind a cheerleader. She would say, Patrick, read the next paragraph. I had no clue how to read. I was not a reader. So I go to the military, I was a math guy. So I'm not playing the, um, I wasn't that smart, I'm not playing that game. All I'm saying is reading wasn't something I had interest in. I had interest in math analysis, I had interest in pre-calculus, I had interest in you know, trigonometry, I had interest in numbers. That was fascinating to me. But I get out of the military, I'm working at Bally's, and this man named Robbie Solomon and my sister say, you got to start reading books. My sister recommended me How to Win Friends and Influence People, and Robbie recommended me uh, How to Master the Art of Selling. And then all of a sudden, I got addicted to books. And today, our currency in our house, if the kids want to have leverage to negotiate with me with anything they want, the currency is pages you read per day. It doesn't matter if we're on vacation, if it's a Saturday, Sunday, the kids are required to read 20 pages every day. That starts at the age of six. When you turn six in our family, every day you read 20 pages. Now, obviously, the level of complaint, you know, difficulty of the book is a lot easier at six than it is at eight than it is at 10. But my 10-year-old right now reads three, 400-page books, and he goes through them, and he devours them because I think that's the secret sauce. You can go get a four-year degree. You can go get an MBA. But if you're done reading books after that, who cares about that four-year? I would much rather have you not have a two-year degree, not have a four-year degree, not have an eight-year degree, but you're fully committed to reading for the rest of your life. I will bank on you way more than the person that goes and gets an MBA, but he never reads ever again. I think that's part of lifestyle. The secrets of life, strategy, business, marriage, raising kids, finances, investments, they're, they're hidden in all these books. We just got to kind of sometimes open these books and go through them. Well, you must have opened the right ones. Um, you know, you've really made an extraordinary success of your business life. You overcame a lot of, there must have been some risk aversion there somewhere. You got in and had a go in a very big way. You said you sunk everything you owned into the insurance venture you started. And part of the reason for that was to motivate yourself not to fail. It's a big driver for you. Um, around the world, we've seen us Society is willing to shut down economies for the sake of feeling safe. Uh, are we uh, sort of losing our willingness to strengthen our societies, take our cultures forward because we've become risk averse? Let me divide that into two. Tell me a bit about your business career 
and what it looks like today because it's a stunning story. Yeah, so, so and I, then the question as to whether we've become risk averse and we're putting our opportunities at risk. Uh, great question. So uh, I get involved with Morgan Stanley Dean Witter the day before 9-11. I get my Series 766, 3126 Life and Health. I'm selling stocks, bonds, mutual funds. That's what I do. A year later, I choose to go in a niche with insurance. So I leave, I go to a company called Transamerica. I'm with them for seven and a half years. Seven and a half years later, I see what's going on in the market. The average insurance agent was a 56-year-old white male. This is an 08, 07. Only 17% of agents were women. They were not young. They were not recruiting guys that are coming out of college. Insurance wasn't a sexy industry. And I saw Barack Obama win uh, presidency as a one-term senator. In 2008, he wins with Facebook, YouTube, Twitter, 10 bucks, 5 bucks, 20 bucks. I saw Ron Paul run in 2004 for office, raised $6 million in MySpace in 24 hours, which was insane at 69 years old. So I saw the power of social media. I saw what's going on with the Hispanic vote. And I saw that the insurance industry was getting older and they needed a younger audience. I wrote a book called The Next Perfect Storm. October when I started my own insurance company. And I fast forward today. We had a convention last week, at uh, two weeks ago at MGM Grand Arena. We had Shaquille O'Neal there, Kurt Warner. We had Muhammad Ali's daughter. We have all this performance. Nelly put on a concert. I don't know if folks in Australia listen to Nelly. But uh, we had 10,000 plus people in attendance. And the average agent is a 34-year-old Hispanic female. So while the industry is 56-year-old white male, became a 34-year-old Hispanic female. And then we grew that eight weeks ago. One of the largest insurance companies in America came and bought us out. And it was a beautiful uh, 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 partnership that took place eight weeks ago. Um, and then the media side. I accidentally started a media company. We've uh, been able to do uh, well for ourselves. It's turned into a consulting company. We have all these different divisions within it. But going back to the question you asked about, you know, business and the, the fears of what could happen, you know, if people don't make it in business, all this other stuff. When you think about capitalism, capitalism has four core foundations to it. It allows you the freedom to buy whatever you want legally, the freedom to sell whatever you want legally, the freedom to try whatever you want legally. And the last one is the one they want to hide is the freedom to fail. You and I have to have the freedom to fail. Yep. Companies have to have the freedom to fail. Otherwise, there's no right to succeed. Then it's not capitalism. So when some people give criticism to the too big to fail companies saying, these guys want capitalism for us and socialism for them, I agree with that argument. Because if one of these too big to fail companies are not handling their finances properly, you got to let them go out of business. Let somebody else buy them out. This building that we bought, Chase is in the back, they have an ATM there. They lease from us, right? Chase's ATM back there, they lease from us. This was a bank. Chase has been around for many years. JP Morgan Chase started it. At one point, when the government wasn't handling their finances, JP Morgan Chase bailed out the US government. This is when back in the days the government wasn't, you know, as big as it was. So JP Morgan gave money to the government. Think about the capitalists bailed out the US government. But we don't tell those stories because capitalists are obviously bad people according to today's media. However, in 2004, there's a bank in America that's blowing up. Everybody's thinking it's going to be bigger than Wells Fargo, bigger than B of A, bigger than everybody. The bank is called WAMU, Washington Mutual. WAMU goes and becomes a $330 billion company, WAMU. But when the market hit, people realized they were giving loans out to people by this program called No Income, No Assets. And it was a very uh, reckless program that was built only for the wealthy but they introduced it to low-income, middle-income families. These guys were paying nothing, and then all of a sudden, they can't afford to pay the payments. Boom, it flipped. WAMU went from being a $330 billion company to two years later, Chase bought them for $1.9 billion. And that's exactly how it should be. If you're too reckless in business, you should fail. So we're too worried about people failing, but unfortunately, when you watch boxing, unfortunately, Many times there's going to be a humiliating knockout where we watch a guy on the floor. And that guy's wife's watching him. His kids are watching him. His mom is seeing the kid, you know, her kid passed out on the floor. But we celebrate boxing. We love UFC. We love when a football team loses. We love when a rugby team wins. Our team wins, the other team loses. That's painful. We should let people also fail in life. As much as it sucks, it's part of the game. So, well, an interesting question. I mean, I found it amazing that 
the American taxpayer basically bought General Motors. Yeah. Should they have bought General Motors or should have General Motors been allowed to fail? I, I think you should have let General Motors fail and Ford would have bought them. Somebody would have bought them out. Yeah. Let somebody else who's got a better management team to come and pick them up rather than the government buys them out. Because what happens after the government buys them out? So AIG is going out of business. They go to the government to be bailed out, $183 billion. The government gives to CEO Bob Ben Moshe. Bob Ben Moshe comes out of retirement. He was a former CEO of MetLife. He's dying. He's on his deathbed. He has cancer. He's got three years to live. And he's on steroids constantly. His face breaks out. But one of the best CEOs of our lifetime. AIG brings him in. He brings the CFO from American General, promotes him to their CFO of AIG, David Herzog. They go to the government, get $183 billion of money, taxpayers' money. A few years later, he pays it back to the government with $21 billion of interest. General Motors, that's owned by the government now, they still haven't paid back taxpayers. Why? Because now the government's running it. How's that working out for us? Where is the complaint? Like if I go to the DMV here, which is where you get your driver's license, go write a complaint on Yelp about them. They don't care. Go tell a government employee, I'm going to write a negative review about you. Go ahead and do it. But go tell a small restaurant, if you don't give me that Coke and you don't fix this, I'm going to write a negative review about you. Ma'am, let me fix this for you. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Let me help you out. Here's a drink. Matter of fact, today's food is on us. Thank you. You can't say that to the government. So the moment customer service goes to government, where's the accountability? They've not shown that they care about the customer as much because if you file complaints, who does it go to? There, there is no accountability when the government's running a business. I don't think it's a good idea, although many people think nationalizing many of these corporations would be a good, good idea. I'm not part of that committee. I'm not. <laughs> For good reason, I think history tells you. There are some things governments can and should do, but running businesses tends not to be one of them. No. Um, so you're now freer to do something that you're very good at, if I may say so, which is run social commentary, uh, provide thought leadership, channel people to thought leadership elsewhere, even if you disagree with it. You and I disagreed on one thing this morning, uh, and then we both piled on to another panellist. Mm -hmm. We disagreed with him, yep. and we've all come our friends. But it's been a healthy discussion. We've all learnt more about it. One of the things we've talked about a lot that really fascinates me is this loss of confidence in the West in itself. And you're in an ideal position to comment on that. We, we, we seem to have got to the point where we don't understand how good we've got it, where we, we, we're attacking the people in our institutions, the institutions themselves, and the ideas behind them in a way that's almost reckless. Yeah. So, you know, it, it, the story about the average billionaire whose wealth only lasts three generations, right? Yeah. Why does the wealth only last three generations? Why is it that... Many of the billionaires we knew about, their grandkids today don't have a lot of the money. What happened? Their great-grandkids. Because the person who created the wealth worked very hard to create that wealth. But typically, the kids were the only ones that witnessed the success of what daddy really did. And then they have to make a decision. I don't want to work as hard as dad did. I don't want to work as hard as mom did. I don't want to do that. I'm just going to go be a school teacher. I'm just going to go do this. I'm No problem. Go do what you're doing. But eventually... The money gets into the hands of grandkids and great-grandkids. And these kids didn't do nothing to get that money. The money just came down to them. I hired a guy one time. Uh, I brought him on the podcast. Great conversation. He was from Seattle, which I think you're going there next. He was from Seattle. And I said, so tell me about your business model, what you do. He says, I try to prevent billionaires, kids, and grandkids from becoming drug addicts. He said, really? That's your yeah. job? That's yeah. what I do for a living. In Seattle. Yeah. He said, well, I'm in Seattle. You have to know a lot of people around me are billionaire families. So one of the families he talked about was the uh, Franklin Templeton family. I think the family at the top was worth $5.1 at the time. He openly talked about this. They had 16 grandkids. And of the 16 grandkids, most of them challenging time. And the, the, father, the grandfather who started everything, he said, I want to kind of prevent this from happening. The point he made is, in many cases, by the time they call me, it's too late. Yeah. They're already doing all the drugs, all the, you know, as much cocaine, ecstasy, everything they can get their hands on. The partying, the prostitution, the DUIs, the lack of work ethic. They've had the Ferraris. They've had the cars. They've had going to school where the dad gives a million bucks to the, you know, school and they get straight A's and they get honored. They get this. They've already done all of that stuff. They've already gotten away with everything. And he comes in and try to change these people at 32 years old. How are you going to do it? 
Try to change them at 29 years old. So what's the moral of the story with what you're asking me? To, to take it back, John, where high standards becomes the norm, where responsibility becomes a norm, reliability becomes a norm, getting up in the morning and doing something about your life becomes a norm, that's going to take a decade or two. But it's going to take a decade or two of us being aligned at the top. Because say mom is like, no, oh my gosh, leave him alone. Let him sleep in. Let him sleep in. He feels a little sick. I'm like, this kid's not sick today. He just fooled you. Believe me, I did this many times with my mom. I wasn't sick. Just didn't want to go to school. This kid is not sick. I'm telling you he's not sick. Because watch this. You're sick? Yeah, no problem. I think we got to go to the doctor because you got to get a shot to get better. No, 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 I'm not sick. I'm not sick. I thought you said you're sick. No, I'm not sick. No, if you're sick, we got to get you a penicillin shot. We got to get you to get better. No, no, I'm totally fine. I thought I was sick, but I'm okay. Okay, so go to school. You can stay home. We got to go see the doctor. You can go to school. No, I'm going to go to school. You know what, mom? I'm feeling better. Versus, <laughs> oh my gosh, oh my gosh. So that, that part, we, we are afraid of pushing people back and saying, oh, you want unemployment? I do. We're going to put you on unemployment for 24 months. Awesome. And we're going to give you exactly what your salary was at your last job. Oh my God, this is great. However, what's that? What were you paying? What were they paying at your last job? Four grand a month. And how many hours were you working per week? 40 hours a week. Great. We're going to pay you four grand a month, but you're going to do 40 hours a week of community service for the exchange of money we'll pay you. So you're going to help us clean the roads. You're going to help us clean the streets. You're going to help us do a lot of that stuff until you find a job. But if you don't want to do it, we'll pay you four grand a month, but you got to be there every morning at eight o'clock and you got to be there at five o'clock. And every month we're going to do a drug test on you because we're giving taxpayers money to you. So great. Let's go ahead and sign you up. Go ahead. You know what? I'm going to go look for a job. Oh, no problem. Choice is yours. So we're afraid to put that other side on people. So we're letting people to take advantage of the government and taxpayers because no, God forbid, they don't want to vote for our party. No, we're building leaders and we're not done a good job building leaders because in many ways we become pansies and we're soft and we're afraid to lose people not liking us. And that's just not the quality of a leader. The quality of a leader is to challenge you and I to step up and do things that we typically wouldn't do on our own. And but do it in a respectful way, do it in a way where you encourage belief, yet you're not worried about challenging them. We're just not doing that. Um, I admire the way, you know, you put very firm opinions, but you don't pour gasoline on the fire, to use an American expression, we'd say petrol on the fire. And when, uh, you know, there's this sort of left-right brawl in this country that's just blindly wild, and we're seeing more evidence now of the way you know, leading politicians can just attack one another based on poll reading to try and get people out to vote. There's no consideration of what they're saying about their fellow Americans and the need to pull together the things that we've discussed. I thought it was very wise of you to observe when Biden won uh, that, look, take it calmly, there'll be the midterms, that'll probably alter things, there'll be balance, you have an opportunity to even things out. I think that's what the, the, the spirit of what you were putting. How are you seeing the midterms as they approach now, as you and I talk? We're going we're to find out what's going to happen. I mean, obviously, if the people are happy, they're going to keep control. If they're not happy, they're going to lose control. Um, you know, you, you, when you have the approval rating that you have right now, the people are speaking. It's the lowest it's ever been in the history of America ever since we started tracking approval rating. And maybe if it's real, if it's real, it's going to show up during the midterms. But, you know, Nobody likes it when their sports team loses. Nobody likes it when they lose a best player. Nobody likes it when their favorite fighter gets knocked out. We don't like it. And if you're a competitive person and you have certain person to get behind up, if you truly are a fan of us, like I remember as a kid when the Lakers lost to the Bulls and Michael Jordan beat the Lakers and I was a Magic fan, I was devastated for a year as a fan, right? I was a kid, obviously, when I'm going through it. So in many ways, when the person you voted for doesn't win, and you were behind that person, it's not a fun exercise, but this is why the four-year concept works. You know, you got to have to put up with that person for four years. And meanwhile, you still got to go work. You still got to figure out a way to make money. You know, a great leader makes money when a president, Republicans are president, when a Democrats are president. It doesn't matter. You got to figure out a way to make it work. But uh, at the same time, we're going to see how the voters are going to react in the next few months. It's going to be very interesting. Thinking about past U.S. presidents, you made a really interesting observation that kind of jumped out at me and I thought, that's interesting, let's explore it. Uh, you said that Americans elect presidents based on the performance of the previous one. 
So Americans loved Ronald Reagan, so they elected his vice premier, uh, uh, president, uh, George Bush Sr. To carry that forward, Bush Sr. then might have given us Clinton. Clinton gave us Bush Jr. Bush Jr. gave us Obama. Obama gave us Trump. Trump gave us Biden. Any thoughts on who Biden might give us? I mean, he may give it back to Trump or give it to DeSantis, but I don't think Biden's going to give it to himself again. That's for sure. I don't think it's going to be himself. I don't think it's going to be Kamala. I think uh, they're trying to uh, prepare Newsom for potentially to run. Pete doesn't have the ability to run. He's not marketable to run foreign affairs in the Middle East. It'll be tough. If Michelle Obama runs, she'll be a formidable opponent. But I think the, the biggest thing is the following. So, you know, Jeff Bezos is married to his wife for 25 years, and then they decided to get a divorce. Who does she remarry? A school teacher. Why? She is done being married with a super driven guy. It's like, go, 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 go. Finally, she's like, dude, I'm done. I just want a school teacher who gets up at three o'clock, does a little bit of homework, and then we can go have a drink. We can go have some wine. And it's just not that driven, not that ambitious. I'm done with it. But in about five years, she's going to be bored out of her mind. And she may be laying in bed next to him, and he's just doing the same exact thing. And he may say, I freaking miss that crazy psycho Jeff Bezos guy, right? We're weird creatures, right? You date a girl and... It was insanely hot, crazy, tough, competitive, similar personality, and then constant arguing, fighting, and then you end up with somebody that you're like, I'm never dating a crazy girl like this again. This is way too much for me. I want somebody safe, solid, civil, you know, and then you're like, but we're, again, we're constantly going back and forth with anything that we do. You buy a sports car, it's too loud, the engine's too loud. I just want a Tesla. I just want a quiet car. You know what? I don't hear the engine. Where's the engine? A car shouldn't be a car without an engine. We're never happy. We are creatures. We're never happy. Anything we get, we're eventually going to find a flaw in that one thing that we get, right? So whoever you have as a presidency, you know, typically we flip and we go, oh, it's all his fault. Oh, it's all his fault. Oh, it's all her fault. Oh, it's all his fault. And this is why America works. Because there's a pendulum going back and forth. The one area that is a problem is... I would, I would like to see them be unified on certain things that we're on the same page with. Greatest country in the world. You know, the fact that, you know, no matter what happens, love thy neighbor. Certain values and principles that we stay unified on. But, yeah, America knows what they do. They get tired of a candidate. They flip to the other side very quickly. Why, though? Because we're learning more and more and more that America is ran by 12% of voters. It's not the Democrats, the 47%. It's not the Republicans, the 44%. It's not the Green. It's not the, you know, Libertarian. It's ran by the independents. And that's 8 to 12%. And independents are more easily to say, yeah, I kind of don't like the direction we're going. I'm going to go this way. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. America's ran by independents. You've written and spoken a lot about leadership. How do you think bad leadership in America has contributed to its current situation. What do you think, because you talk about this a lot, what virtues do you want to see in the leaders to sort of break free of the very things you've just been talking about? So, you know, uh, UFC or boxing, divisive figures sell pay-per-view. It's that simple. So a Don King or a Dana White's job is to create a story. And the bigger the story is, the more we want to see it. A movie came out called Warrior with Nick Nolte, Tom Hardy, and another actor. Okay, And the whole premise behind the story was the, the father, who is an alcoholic, Nick Nolte, raises two boys who are both great fighters. And this one rich millionaire, billionaire guy comes out and says, I want to know who's the baddest man on earth. Here's $5 million to the baddest man on earth. And one of the sons goes to the father and says, I want you to train me because I want to go win this $5 million. But he calls him a piece of this. You're, you're drunk. I hate you. You did this. You did that. And the dad still is an alcoholic, Nick Nolte. The other son goes to another coach that used to coach and says, let's go win this $5 million. Bucks. Well, on this side, it's one of the sons. On the other side, it's another son. They keep beating people, beating people, beating people, beating people, beating people. Eventually, final matches, the two sons against each other. 
What a spectacle. I mean, the promoter's like fantastic. Two brothers whose father's an alcoholic, can't stand each other. Which brother's gonna take the five million? That's what you want, right? So America is using the same UFC model, the same Don King model in our politics. It's selling eyeballs, but it's dividing us. I think this is the one area where it, it makes me feel uncomfortable, but it, we're in too deep where we can't change anything in how big of a role media plays because they, they get paid the more we're like, like in, in a year and a half, CNN, Fox, MSNBC, their margins are going to go up. Their profits are going to go up because everybody's going to be glued to the screen. Did you hear about what happened with DeSantis? Did you hear about what they said about this? Did you hear about, oh, oh my God, I'm going to just watch it. So it's become UFC boxing and I don't know. I, I'm not comfortable with that. There's certain areas you should like husband and wife, like in sales. I recruited a husband and wife to sell insurance and the wife one day comes to me and says, I sold more than my husband today. And the husband, I saw his back kind of went like this. And the husband's like, well, I'm going to sell more than you tomorrow. He said, no, you're not. I'm a better salesman than you. And then one day I'm like, I brought him to the office. I said, listen, guys, listen, can I make a suggestion? What's that? I don't like you guys competing against each other on who sells more, but it's working for us. No, it's not. You guys don't like each other right now. I said, compete out. Don't compete internally in your house. Marriage is already very hard. It's very hard. Hardest thing you'll ever do is marriage. You got to get along with the other person. Then you got to bring another kid into the world. Maybe two, maybe three. Then you got to get along with the in-laws. Then you got financial issues. Then you have to please them sexually. He has to try to please you. There needs to be food. Then you have to find a place to live. You may not like the place. Market's going to happen. Politics is going to happen. Religion's going to happen. And you want to compete against each other? I don't recommend it. I recommend you guys compete against another couple. Find enemy outside, not inside. Marriage is already challenging. Don't add more to it. I think politics is already so ugly. Let's find the enemies on the outside and try to compete here politically on policies. But what I'm saying is it's just, it's become a spectacle. So it's more wishful thinking today in America. Well, I understand exactly what you're saying there. Let me round this out then by just seeking your views. I think you're basically an optimist, but you're a very realistic optimist. And sometimes the realists are right, my wife would say, more often than they ought to be. But they're sometimes right. Are you optimistic or pessimistic about America's uh, role in the future as the leader of the free world? Well, I'm optimistic, but overly paranoid. I'm naturally paranoid. So that's just my wiring. You know, Andy Grove once wrote a book, one of the best business books out there. He said, only the paranoid survive. And Andy Grove is like legend in business, Intel. Silicon Valley, everybody admired this man, Andy Grove. So I think you got to stay optimistic, but I think you got to be paranoid as well. I think it's uh, uh, dangerous to be pessimistic and paranoid because you won't live a fun life. And I think it's uh, uh, very naive to be optimistic and not paranoid. I think the best combination is to be optimistic and paranoid. Future looks bright, but let's make sure we're ready for it. Future looks bright, but let's make sure our military is strong. Future looks bright, but let's make sure we keep, you know, encouraging innovation. Future looks bright, so it's constantly that mindset. One without the other, I don't think works. Hope for the best and prepare for the worst? That's it. Be paranoid. Stay paranoid, because there's a lot of people that don't like America. There's a lot of people that don't like uh, capitalists. There's a lot of people that don't like people who won, you know, against all odds. I mean, people don't like that. That produces envy. That produces jealousy. That produces people behind closed doors, I want to figure out a way for you to come down. You don't really know who it is. You, you probably have a lot of people that you went to school with that are not happy that you made it to the top in politics. There's some people that wanted to become a deputy prime minister that didn't. You didn't want to become a deputy prime minister and you did. You don't think you have enemies? You think you know all your enemies? You think all the people that said stuff behind your back, you know all the people? You think the most difficult person in your life in the last 40, 50 years? You're knocking the pessimism out. Uh, no, what, <laughs> I'm trying, what I'm trying to say is, but no, but what I'm trying to right. say is, it's naive for you yeah. and I to think, hey, you get to become a deputy prime minister of Australia and, you know, all your enemies, you know, all of them. The most dangerous enemy you have, you don't even know who it is. It's the one you don't see. Yeah, it's the one we don't see. So this is why it's best to stay, you know, paranoid. Don't, you know, Trump's challenge, he, he's not going to change. His wiring is his wiring. He produced, you know, he, Art of War says, don't give birth to new enemies because you're already going to have enemies on your way to the top. 
Trump went to the top and he had enemies and he kept creating new enemies. But that's just his New York DNA. You can't help him. That's how he's going to be. So you have to know a big part of why he didn't get reelected is because he produced thousands of new enemies that he didn't have before. He could have prevented them, but he couldn't help himself. Couldn't help himself. Thank you for insights. Thank you for your time. It's been a great privilege. Thank you for coming on. I really enjoyed this one. Thank you. You've been listening to Conversations with John Anderson. For more content, visit johnanderson.net.au.